This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Post-acute sequela of COVID-19. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In early 2020, reports of a respiratory virus causing severe pneumonia and death were developing in Wuhan, China. Soon, cases of COVID-19 were reported in countries all over the world. Initially, the focus was really on treating acute COVID infections, but pretty soon, more and more cases were surfacing of patients who continued to struggle with various new complaints long after acute COVID-19 infection had resolved. There were a large range of symptoms seen in patients weeks to months after COVID-19 infection that could affect nearly every organ system in the body. Common complaints included persistent cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, headaches, mood changes, sleeping difficulties, brain fog, palpitations, and so much more. As increasing numbers of patients became affected by this post-COVID syndrome, physicians and scientists began studying this phenomenon to help discern the cause and viable treatments. Now we are nearly four years post-emergence of COVID-19. We have a lot more knowledge about COVID and the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19. Today, I've invited three guests from Ohio State University post-COVID recovery program to share what they have learned caring for these individuals so that we too can provide evidence-based care for these patients. First, I have Dr. Andrew Seamus, who is an associate professor of internal medicine. He has been part of the multidisciplinary post-COVID recovery clinic since the beginning and has presented his expertise at national conferences. Dr. Erin McConnell is an assistant professor of internal medicine and pediatrics and practices MedPeds primary care like myself. She has also been a part of the COVID recovery clinic since its inception is an, and is an emerging leader of narrative medicine. 
Last but not least, I have Dr. Aaron Friedberg, who is a veteran of our program, and he is an, also an associate professor of internal medicine, practicing primary care and also has been a part of the OSU COVID recovery program since the beginning. He is frequently quoted in the national media about long COVID and has educated other physicians in the care of long COVID through both national presentations and workshops. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, starting with you, Dr. Seamus, how common is long COVID? How many patients who get COVID, which is a lot of patients, develop long COVID? It is surprisingly common. The best estimate is that about 3 to 5% of patients after acute COVID-19 will go on to have some sort of long COVID symptoms. And the estimated worldwide number of people affected by long COVID is 200 million, which puts it in the same ballpark as conditions, chronic conditions like diabetes and heart failure and COPD. Wow, that's a lot of patients. And is it cumulative where each time you get COVID, you increase your risk of de developing long COVID? You might say that. Each separate infection carries a certain risk of getting long COVID. So mm -hmm. yes, that's correct. Okay. And Dr. McConnell, do you feel like primary care can really drive the bus on long COVID care? Or are there other specialists that play more of a key role? Um, I think primary care could drive the bus on, excuse me, taking care of patients with long COVID. Um, in a short time, um, Dr. Seamus is going to provide a definition on the um, symptoms that help qualify patients for long COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's going to help provide a framework in which primary care providers can identify patients that likely have long COVID mm -hmm. um, as far as symptoms with onset within three months of long COVID. Um, keeping that framework in mind, um, you know, identifying these patients who were well prior to um, and then developing symptoms following their COVID infection. Um, I think that with a little bit of additional education, they could provide quality care to their patients with long COVID. Excellent. And Dr. Friedberg, are there any prevailing symptoms that seem to be present across all patients with long COVID? So it is tough because the symptoms can seem so variable. Uh, you know, common symptoms are fatigue and chest discomfort, shortness of breath, uh, headache, uh, brain fog or cognitive dysfunction, uh, fast heart rate, uh, dysautonomia or POTS. Um, but the common uh, factor is that they happen with or shortly after a COVID infection. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu slash mednet21, where you can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and instructions to receive your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcasts. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Dr. Seamus? Well, thank you. So the objectives of this talk will be for learners to understand working criteria for the diagnosis of post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, PASC, or also otherwise known as long COVID, understand some of the therapies, both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic, used to manage long COVID symptoms, and understand the impact long COVID can have on patients' quality of life and functional status. So understand that long COVID was a disease identified initially by patients before it was recognized by health providers. Patients on social media who had had COVID-19 began to post that they had these prolonged, troubling, often disabling symptoms. And by comparing notes, they identified a syndrome, which they themselves named long haul syndrome or long COVID. 
Um, somewhere around 2021, national agencies began to catch up with this and try to develop definitions. But in the early days, this was really very broadly defined. The World Health Organization is, definition is the one that has been most used. And they simply say that a post-COVID condition is one that occurs about three months from the onset of COVID-19 with symptoms that last at least two months and cannot be explained by an alternate diagnosis. Now, these symptoms can be myriad. I won't read everything on this slide, but uh, um, clinicians seeing this will, uh, will notice that very, many of these symptoms are not in any way pathognomonic of long COVID. Headache, cough, palpitations, dyspnea, diarrhea, insomnia, these are all things that we see. And in fact, when they do large population studies, they find that there is a baseline rate of these in the population. So you may see a higher rate in people after SARS-CoV-2, but you're certainly gonna see these in people who do not have SARS-CoV-2 as well. So from a clinician standpoint, this is not really a very useful diagnosis, And I think a lot of clinicians get confused by how, how are they gonna diagnose long COVID. There was recently, this was an important publication. It came out of the Recover Initiative, which is the large federally funded US study to try to learn more about long COVID. And what they did basically was they, they had a large cohort of just under a thousand patients who'd had SARS-CoV-2 and a smaller co cohort of about a thousand patients who had not had SARS-CoV-2. And they looked at the rate of symptoms in the two populations and then tried to define a score that was that kind of made it more likely that the patient had long COVID or that could identify with some accuracy patients who'd had COVID-19 and who had not. So, and in this model, um, you can see that smell and taste gives you a very high score, post-exertional malaise. Um, some of the other symptoms like palpitations and chest pain can be associated with long COVID but they have a lower numeric score. And they uh, established a cutoff of 12 as the, the best cutoff to really define patients who had long COVID. This work was somewhat criticized because there are a lot of long COVID patients out there who have dizziness and fatigue and chest pain and palpitations and not smell and taste disorder. And they probably do have long COVID. They certainly believe they do. And so the scale seemed to be a little too narrow to define some patients who really have the syndrome. So this is a work in progress. I, I think the, the easiest way for me to look at it and probably for most clinicians is we see certain symptom patterns or clusters or sometimes the term phenotype is used that are common in long COVID patients. And, you know, the, so some of the phenotypes are brain fog. Patients just feel that their cognition, their thinking, their memory is off. Chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia-like symptoms with muscle aching and fatigue and poor sleep, dyspnea on exertion, palpitations and chest pain, and the other things you see on the slide. And the key thing really is that for most patients, they will say, I was, I, had, I was doing fine or I had X symptoms until I got COVID and maybe a few weeks or a month or however after, after I had COVID, suddenly everything changed and I had these very bothersome disabling symptoms. 
to me, that is the key thing. You will occasionally find a patient who develops these symptoms and doesn't connect it with long COVID. But if you look in their chart and you see, okay, about a month before the onset date, they had COVID-19, they should be suspected of having long COVID. The neurosymptoms, I'm not going to spend too long on this because we've already touched on it, but I, here's a list of what I would consider the common neurosymptoms, brain fog, fatigue, paresthesias, especially painful paresthesias, dysautonomia, which you'll hear a good deal about from Dr. McConnell, headaches, which can be migraines, either new onset or increased frequency, or more in the chronic daily headache category. Mood symptoms, which often seem to be primary um, um, aspects of long COVID, that is people who really had no depression or anxiety, and suddenly they do have these mood symptoms. So there probably is some neural cause of this. Sleep disturbance, again, new onset, and then the smell and taste disturbances, which can be loss of smell and taste or distortion or sort of gustatory um, hallucinations where people taste or smell things that aren't there. So let's run through a case study. Um, this is a fairly typical patient who any of us might see in clinic. 33-year-old woman, mildly, somewhat overweight, otherwise quite healthy, on no meds, happens not to have been vaccinated for COVID-19. She is a customer service manager for an IT firm. She loves her job and they love her there. She's married, her husband is self-employed as a contractor, and she has um, sucker-aged kids, five and eight. Um, she gets COVID-19 in mid-January, has you know, you know moderate symptoms, typical upper respiratory symptoms, feels crummy for a while. She's off work for a week, and then she goes back. When she gets back to the office, everything is different. Suddenly, she, she's someone who would just race through her tasks at lightning speed, notices that she can't complete simple tasks. She can't take notes while she's listening to a customer. She can't recall simple words. She can't learn new information. She can't manage her workflows. She's exhausted all day, and as the day goes on, she just feels like she can barely manage it. She suddenly is getting daily headaches, and she has muscle aching, and she's anxious, which she never was before, and suddenly she can't sleep. She goes to one of your colleagues in February and they do some lab work, TSH, CBC, ESR, autoimmune panel, everything comes back normal and so they refer her to neuro. Neurology she sees about a month later. She's described as having a non-focal exam. She gets a brain MRI, which as we know is the fifth vital sign for neurologists. Um, and the, that's normal, and so the diagnosis is chronic daily headache, and they say, well, stress reduction is the recommendation. Now she's back to you in your office. She's still having the same symptoms. She's months into it now. Brain fog, fatigue, headaches, and myalgias. She's struggling to maintain her job and her family roles. She's starting to, or she has taken a lot of sick time, and so her supervisor is concerned. Her quality of work and productivity have declined sharply, and she just feels like she wants to die by the time she gets home. She has no energy for her kids or her family. She just wants to go straight to sleep, and after 10 hours of sleep, she wakes up exhausted. Notably, she does feel a little better if she can rest all weekend, um, but then it just starts again on Monday. Her husband is noticing the brain fog symptoms and starting to wonder if she has early Alzheimer's. She just keeps forgetting things. 
Her sister is telling her there's nothing wrong with her and she just needs to snap out of it. So what are your next steps? Well, so you would approach this the same way that you would approach any condition. First of all, you want to make the diagnosis. Don't make it too hard. You don't, you, you, yes, you want to identify that symptoms began after her COVID-19 infection and have persisted three months or more. Alternate diagnoses, it's not completely a diagnosis of exclusion. You don't have to test for every other thing on the planet. I think if she fits the picture and she doesn't have any clear signs that say it's something else, you can largely diagnose long COVID. Communicate the diagnosis, very important. We'll talk a little more about that. With patients who have many, many symptoms, a good approach is to say which three bother you the most and work on those. And then you can do symptom-specific management. We don't have a cure, but we can help people with symptoms. So communication, sometimes better than pills, right? Because we don't have a clear-cut treatment for this. But I have had patients cry, many patients cry. When, you simply say, when I simply say, you have long COVID, it's a real thing. You're in good company. There are lots of other patients who have these symptoms. Like just having a name for what's going on means a lot. Plus, they can then tell other people what they have. You know, they can talk to their supervisor. They can talk to their friends. My doctor says I have long COVID. And they now have a basis to start figuring out what they can do for themselves, self-education, chronic disease management. Also, important to tell patients, especially with a duration on, with less than 12 months of symptoms, they have a decent prognosis. There's reason for optimism that they, they very well may be better. It'll be long, but six months, 12 months down the line, they may be better. And for a lot of patients, you're going to need to be thinking they may need to be on short-term disability. And so they now have a, a diagnosis that they can use to apply for accommodations. Um, brain fog, just a word about that, because it's an intimidating symptom. It's a common symptom. Um, and, you know, if there's something neurological going on that's causing cognitive impairment and we don't know what it is and we can't put them on steroids or put them on IVIG or plasma exchange, what do we do? Well, brain fog has a lot of different components. And you can often treat the things that contribute to it. Like we know how to treat poor sleep. You know, we can sometimes treat their pain and help them sleep. We can treat mood symptoms. We can advise them to, you know, avoid cognitive overexertion. So we'll talk a little more about this, but there are things you can do to treat these symptoms that are within the primary care repertoire. First line, for many of my patients, the first thing I advise is rest and pacing. And I, I frame it as, you know, you, you have limited energy and you can either use it to, you know, whip yourself to work and work and work and be exhausted, or you can stop and use that metabolic energy to heal. So ideally, if I can, I will tell patients who have really bad symptoms, like the one we discussed, one month off from work, rest and rehabilitation. No, you're not going to use that time to clean your basement. No, you're not going to time, use that time to build a new you know, deck. No, you're really going to do nothing for a month. You would be surprised how much better people feel. And then you take them back to work little by little, sometimes two hours, three times a week, move up to four, move up to eight. Often that's very effective. You have to modify that based on what's feasible. Not every patient um, has you know, a good sick time policy or, or temporary leave policy, but do what you can. 
it's important for patients to own their condition and ask for help. They, they shouldn't say, I'm ashamed because I can't do what I used to do. They have to say, I have a disease. It's the same as if I, I mean, if somebody had you know, been hit by a car in an MVA and they had to take three months off to rehabilitate, nobody would think twice about that. It's the same thing. Obviously, that doesn't apply to everybody, but it's, these are good techniques to take, keep in mind, and there, there's no, you know, it's, it's not putting somebody on a high-risk repurposed medication. All right, so here's sort of my, my slide on just things we can do to treat neurosymptoms. You will have access to this talk, so I'm not going to go into detail on everything, but cognitive rest we talked about for brain fog, work accommodations, Realize cognitive rehabilitation, this is in the repertoire of speech therapists. If you're affiliated in any way with a hospital or a large health system, you probably have access to speech therapy. And speech therapists rehabilitate patients with brain injury and stroke, and so they often can figure out what to do, and it's very helpful for, um, for patients with long COVID and these symptoms. Pharmacotherapy. If I had to choose one drug that I've used with success, it's amantadine, 100 milligrams BID, not FDA approved, but for various reasons, it does seem to help cognition and concentration, and it's pretty well tolerated. There are some others, modafinil, which is provigil, is a more of a straight out stimulant for patients with fatigue. Fibromyalgia, you know how to treat fibromyalgia. You have these patients, right? Symptom titrated physical therapy. You have to talk to your physical therapist. This is not like rehabilitating from a, a knee replacement where you just increase your exercise step by step. You've got to stop where, where patients start to reach a point of exhaustion. But physical therapy can be helpful. And then you use gabapentin, you use pregabalin, you use tricyclics. You know, they're very helpful for patients with this chronic pain. Headaches, cognitive behavioral therapy is really the treatment of choice for chronic daily headache. The drug of choice is amitriptyline at 10 to 25 milligrams daily. And then for the migraines, just the things we use for migraines, the CGRP inhibitors work great in these patients. Adjustment disorder, just recognize that not everybody who cries has major depression, right? I mean, and patients can just be reacting to their situation. Sometimes education and reassurance is fine. You don't necessarily need to medicate. Cognitive behavioral therapy is, can be very helpful. If they really are depressed, you have the SSRIs. And I tend to like bupropion when fatigue is prominent because it's a little bit stimulating. Poor sleep, again, the things that you already know about, melatonin, amitriptyline. And I'm going to say a word about treating anosmia um, because it's hard to treat. But there's some interesting work. A number of studies now have been published about a procedure called stellate ganglion block. Um, there's a picture there. You, what, I work with an anesthesiologists do this. And they inject um, a blocking agent into the stellate ganglia, which is a sympathetic nerve ganglia in the neck, right around C6. It's very safe. It's very well tolerated. And for a lot of patients, first of all, their smell and taste come back after this procedure. And second, a lot of their other symptoms improve, as you can see in the chart. So brain fog, fatigue, mood, you know, dyspnea even. So it's very interesting. Is it a lasting response? Yes, for some patients, no for others. But you might talk with your anesthesia colleagues. They are already possibly doing this for things like PTSD. So it's a familiar procedure. Um, 
Why does this happen? I don't have time to really go into the um, pathophysiology, but presumably there's something driving an ongoing inflammatory or immune response, and it's probably cytokines and immune mediators entering the central nervous system that cause um, inflammation there and thus, um, you know, uh, lead to these symptoms. So takeaway points, diagnosis, validation, and patient education are important. Cognitive rehab is a great treatment. Pacing is a great treatment. Prognosis for recovery is fairly good. And there are a number of repurposed medications in clinical use if you choose to look into them. And then think about stellate ganglion block as an option. Thank you, and I'm going to turn this over to Dr. McConnell to talk about dysautonomia. Thank you, Dr. Seamus. Um, so I'm Erin McConnell. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about um, the aspects of post-COVID, um, specifically dysautonomia, POTS, and a little bit about patient advocacy. Um, just as a review, um, the normal kind of um, autonomic nervous system um, and you know, specifically towards POTS. Um, POTS stands for postural orthostatic, excuse me, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, and so normally when we stand, this is gonna activate our autonomic nervous system. Um, upon standing, 500 to 800 milliliters of our blood volume is gonna go to our um, gastric blood vessels and our um, lower extremity. Um, in response to that, our autonomic nervous system, which is our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, is going to activate. Um, that's going to maintain our cardiac output by increasing our heart rate and peripheral vasoconstriction um, and also cause con constriction of our um, capacitance vessels, which are the muscles of the abdomen and lower extremity. Um, this is going to increase blood flow to the heart and to the brain and keep us upright, ideally. Um, the concern with long COVID is that this can affect the autonomic nervous system um, by various mechanisms, which we will discuss and thus cause um, symptoms of dysautonomia. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, um, we're going to discuss postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, we, um, we want to suspect this in patients who present with um, symptoms such as palpitations, lightheadedness, chest pain, and shortness of breath, especially these symptoms when it occur when standing. Um, you can see the picture. Um, this is a patient that's been um, diagnosed with POTS. Um, they often will talk about discoloration of their extremities, um, especially with prolonged standing. This is described as blood pooling um, or venous blood pooling. Um, this patient's been standing for you know maybe five or ten minutes and um, has bluish discoloration of their legs due to the venous blood pooling. So we're not seeing that peripheral vasoconstriction that we would expect to get the blood flow back up to the heart. Um, when patients present with these symptoms, they'll often talk about, you know, that their heart rate will go up very quickly. Um, they'll talk about palpitations um, and feeling lightheaded. Um, they may not be able to tolerate standing. They may complain of symptoms of syncope. Um, these are all things that are going to present in the um, period after having a COVID infection. Um, other manifestations with this can include fatigue, um, also gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, they may talk about difficulty with temperature regula regulation, such as um, cold intolerance or the opposite, which is just um, profuse sweating. Um, and they may experience cognitive symptoms that, such as Dr. Seamus was alluding to earlier. Um, so there's a couple of theories of why patients with um, long COVID can have POTS. Um, one of them is autoimmunity, where the COVID virus is thought to attack specific receptors such as the um, acetylcholine receptors, the angiotensin II receptors, which are kind of the um, hotspots for lots of things um, COVID related. Um, the um, dysautonomia with long COVID can be related to um, neuropathy, especially fall 
excuse me, small fiber neuropathy, um, which can cause some of those um, symptoms with the um, venous pooling. Um, additionally, just having long COVID can cause issues with hypovolemia and deconditioning. Um, many of our patients with long COVID suffer from post-exertional malaise, um, which Dr. Seamus alluded to, Dr. Friedberg will talk more about, um, but doing any type of activity can cause um, worsening fatigue um, that can result in um, less activity, um, loss of muscle mass, and kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, there can also be issues with neuroendocrine dysfunction um, where we have increased levels of um, the um, catecholamines and angiotensin II levels and then um, decreased levels of norepinephrine and that's going to cause POT symptoms as well. Um, interestingly, for the post-COVID subset of POTS, um, it's thought that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can have direct toxic effects on the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. Um, also, interestingly, um, POTS can be a delayed presentation of long COVID. Um, so the definition Dr. Seamus was talking about earlier, we can actually see patients present with POTS up to a few months after their COVID infection. So just something to keep in mind. Um, this is a very busy diagram that um, was used with permission from the Dysautonomia Project, um, which is actually a great resource for patients that have um, issues with POTS and other um, illnesses of the dysautonomia subset, but just goes through kind of the um, varied presentations of dysautonomia. Um, so it can affect essentially any um, syndrome, and, or excuse me, system. And, and as you can see, it's an um, invisible illness. Um, the onsets can be sudden and unpredictable. Um, so this is a great resource for patients um, and, and providers, to be honest with you. They offer a number of kind of um, clinical education modules for providers regarding dysautonomia, which is um, becoming more of a discussed topic in um, especially patient communities um, regarding long COVID and um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, and just we're talking more about POTS now. So um, to diagnose POTS, um, there are basically two main ways to do it. The gold standard is going to be the head up tilt table test, um, which you can get at major, sorry, get done at major medical centers. This is actually a picture of some astronauts getting ready for their little space expedition, um, having this done in what appears to be a living room. Um, but um, the problem with this test is that it can be um, difficult to obtain. Um, it can be expensive, and oftentimes the waits for this are long. Um, there is an in-office version of this that you can actually do. Um, and it, it takes a little bit of time, um, but you would actually have the patient lie supine for five minutes and then have them stand um, after, I'm sorry, with the lying supine, you would check the heart rate and blood pressure um, and then have them stand for 10 minutes. And then every minute during that time, you're going to check the heart rate and blood pressure um, or every two minutes. Um, what we're looking for is um, a rise in the heart rate, um, more than 30 beats per minute of baseline um, in adults or more than 40 beats per minute in adolescents. And we wanna make sure that their blood pressure does not change by more than 20 over 10 millimeters of mercury um, because that would be a definition of orthostatic hypotension. So we're looking for a rise in the heart rate with um, relative unchanging blood pressure for the diagnosis of POTS. Um, in patients um, presenting with what we're concerned as POTS, it's good to do a couple of lab tests, not because we're expecting them to be abnormal, but because we're wanting to rule out other symptoms that could be, excuse me, other syndromes that could be contributing to um, confounding comorbidities. We could check for iron deficiency. Um, we can check for kidney disease, um, electrolyte abnormalities, thyroid functions, um, and also um, adrenal insufficiency. Um, for cardiology testing, the tilt table test can be helpful. Um, you can do the um, electrocardiogram to evaluate for arrhythmias, but otherwise not a whole lot of other testing needs to be done per se. Um, with the chest pain and shortness of breath, you could consider things like a stress test, especially in um, patients in whom you're worried about cardiovascular disease, but otherwise we don't need to get too extensive. 
Um, management of pots, sorry for the busy wordy slide, um, but just to emphasize that the management of pots is actually very much within the realm of a primary care provider's repertoire. Um, most of it's lifestyle modification. Um, and the kind of um, thing I find with um, helping my patients with pots and um, dysautonomia uh, more in general is that hearkening back to the cornerstones of the lifestyle um, modifications is what's going to help them. Um, medications are more of a second line therapy or I don't wanna say last resort, but we go to those only when we've maximized all the lifestyle treatments for the patients. Um, so we um, want to emphasize uh, um, increasing fluid volume um, dramatically compared to what most people take in, um, emphasizing uh, taking in at least two to three liters of water per day. Um, I like to think of, um, I extrapolate this to ounces just because most of us think in terms of ounces um, being um, American exceptionalist. Um, so 35 ounces is one liter. Um, and so that would be um, equivalent to um, help patients make calculations regarding that. Um, this is also just a guesstimate. So may, some patients may need more than three liters of water per day. Um, this is assuming they've not been told to have water restrictions for other health conditions such as cardiovascular disease. Um, same caveat is going to go with salt. Um, recommendations for salt intake for patients with POTS is going to be 10 to 12 grams per day, um, but that's assuming they've not been told to limit it to two grams per day because of a cardiovascular condition or kidney disease. Um, this amount can be kind of difficult to ingest um, to anyone who's tried to um, eat that much salt. Um, that being said, the um, standard American diet or SAD often is um, really um, replete with salt, but um, 10 to grams is really um, pushing it as far as the amount of salt. So some people can purchase salt tabs. Um, there are various kind of brand names that you can buy on certain retail giants that are available on the internet. Um, so you can um, check those out. Um, also, um, electrolyte repletion beverages can often have salt in them. Um, another key component to treating um, the symptoms of POTS are going to be compression garments. What we're trying to do is mimic the capacitance vessels in the lower extremities, um, making up for that lack of peripheral vasoconstriction that the autonomic nervous system is kind of not helping us with when it's affected by the um, dysautonomia. So knee high, um, thigh high, waist high compression, um, especially abdominal binders, as unpleasant as that sounds, those can be helpful. Um, for some of my patients, I'll ask if they happen to have any shapewear from previous um, formal events, if they've got some of that lying around. Um, or for my um, former athletes, I will talk about compression you know, um, running tights, whatnot. Um, you know, you can also look at um, healthcare supply stores where they may have um, compression, um, sorry, compression um, stockings for um, healthcare employees and whatnot. Those can be kind of more affordable um, modalities to get these garments. Um, one thing to emphasize is um, small, frequent meals. Um, a great amount of blood flow can go to our splanchnic blood vessels when we eat. So putting a big bolus in that area might divert a lot of blood supply from our brain to our gut. Um, so eating small, frequent meals can um, kind of lessen the severity of that diversion. Um, something else that can be helpful for our patients would be um, supine or recumbent exercises such as swimming or using a recumbent bike. Um, we also have to balance this with the post-exertional malaise, which Dr. Um, Friedberg is shortly going to talk about. And then there's something called counter-pressure movements, which is where we um, do um, kind of isometric exercises to increase the peripheral resistance and um, increase the um, perfusion of the brain. So it'd be things like hugging yourself, crossing your legs, um, anything to just kind of make the pressure um, lower in the body to go up um, to perfuse the brain better. Um, so medications, I mentioned, kind of second line, not desirable. They have their own side effects associated with them. Um, so beta blockers can help with um, increasing, uh, or sorry, decreasing the heart rate, so um, helping offset the um, inappropriate sinus tachycardia. Um, 
the fludrocortisones can help with the peripheral vasoconstriction and um, kind of salt um, balance. The minadrine is the same, same thing with the peripheral vasoconstriction. And then Ivabridine, I hope I'm saying that correctly, but um, that yeah, you're going to need to get a higher pay grade to prescribe that than I'm getting um, as far as just the um, complications of managing it. It's a little bit of a scary drug to me, but working on some of the cardiac channels, and I'm going to defer that to my um, specialty um, friends. So, um, but it's used. Um, so, um, again, not to... Um, rain on Dr. Friedberg's parade, but um, just also runs with dysautonomia we see is um, post-exertional malaise. Um, this was first identified in the MECSF, um, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome community. Um, easy for me to say. Um, so we initially saw this in that um, community that um, it, where um, patients are doing activities of daily living um, and then experience fatigue either shortly thereafter or, or even within two to three days afterwards. Um, things that sh normally would have been um, tolerable to them, such as showering, um, doing you know household chores, attending doctor's appointments, can cause crashes where they feel poorly for um, hours and days afterwards. Um, these can be triggered not just by physical activity, but also a variety of stimuli, including um, physical, cognitive, emotional, social, or mental exertion, um, such as attending a party um, or having to do a task at work. Um, as I mentioned, that can occur up to days later. Um, management include many of the um, um, excuse me, strategies that Dr. Seamus alluded to, such as pacing. We also use terms as um, staying with one's energy envelope. And then there's a term um, called radical resting, which is where if you have a big event um, that day, you will just kind of cut out all the other unnecessary activities and rest up so that you'll have um, kind of be your best self for that um, big event at the end of the day. Um, so just a couple kind of patient-centered things. Um, there is um, something called a patient-led research collaborative. Um, so this is actually kind of how long COVID um, research and just long COVID um, as a disease entity got started. Um, this is a group of patients with long COVID, MECSF and POTS, um, and it's the first um, they first led research on long COVID in the spring of 2020. So this is kind of what got the whole long COVID movement started. Um, their missions are uh, principles of disability justice, which is actually a really fascinating um, subtopic in itself. And I could probably do a whole talk on that. Um, they have participatory research methods. So the patients are involved in research and um, also acknowledging that those who experience an illness are best able to identify research questions and solutions. Um, so don't do research on patients without involving those patients. Um, and there's a link there to the um, group, but just really um, a group of amazing people who are not only suffering from the disease, but um, actively involved in researching it and seeking answers to it. Um, so just um, some kind of a little bit of a takeaway point would be the long-term relationship with long COVID um, and encouraging providers to advocate for their patients. Um, so suggestions would be um, to believe your patients, um, acknowledge the limitations of Western medicine. Um, a lot of times when our patients come see us with long COVID, we're t saying that, you know, we're ruling out other conditions. We're saying, okay, well, your pulmonary function testing was normal. Your stress test was normal. Um, and what they're hearing is there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. And I think the thing to emphasize with these patients is that it's not that there's nothing wrong. We're telling you that there's not these extra additional things that we're finding. Um, it does not diminish the fact that you are feeling poorly and that there's something going on with you. It's just that we don't have a test to define this at this point. So acknowledging the limitations of Western medicine and that we can tell you what's not wrong. We can't necessarily tell you what is wrong. It does not make your symptoms, your suffering any less valid. Um, these patients can, um, you know, I don't want to say be, um, they, they um, are very communicative. They're very um, 
open to sharing information with you. And um, we need to be patient with that and also open to receiving information from them because they're um, searching for answers like their lives depend on it because they do depend on it. This can be a very disabling, all-encompassing illness. And so patients who are sending you articles, asking you questions, um, seeking answers, um, they are doing it because they need your help. Um, and so just being um, curious about learning together, um, being humble, acknowledging that this is a process where we're all going to learn things together, um, being open to making shared decisions with patients, I think is really important. And with that, I'm going to pass the wand off to my colleague, Dr. Friedberg, to discuss dyspnea and exertional intolerance. Well, thank you, Dr. McConnell. And I, I, I agree, it's hard to imagine better advice for us as physicians than to be both curious and humble. Uh, well, I, I'm excited to be able to talk to you about uh, some other manifestations in post-COVID dyspnea and exertional intolerance. And so just to start off with a case, uh, this is a late 30s male first responder, uh, married with young children, uh, some medical history of attention deficit disorder managed on stimulants, and well-controlled ulcerative colitis on mesalamine. Uh, he was diagnosed with COVID in late 2021 and had a pretty mild initial infection. Uh, and he returned to work about 10 days after his diagnosis as he was allowed to and was ready to go back to work. However, on his first day back with physical exertion on the first uh, emergency run uh, with exertion, he had significant fatigue, shortness of breath, and crushing substernal chest pain, which given his training uh, raised concern. So he went uh, directly to the emergency department and had a fairly thorough workup, including a normal EKG, BNP and troponin, and a CT scan with contrast looking for a potential clot that just showed subtle ground glass opacities in the bilateral lower lobes uh, consistent with a COVID infection. Uh, he was diagnosed with this uh, uh, COVID pneumonia, given a short steroid taper uh, for pleurisy and, and the COVID. Um, he had some workup after that as well, just because of lingering symptoms uh, that showed a normal echocardiogram, normal pulmonary function testing, and a cardiac MRI that overall was fairly benign, um, but did show a, a tiny bit of fibrosis at the inferior right ventricular attachment site. Uh, so overall, a fairly benign workup. So he took about a month off while he was dealing with these symptoms, and he felt great. Uh, but on return, he had the exact same symptoms on his first run of uh, significant shortness of breath and severe fatigue, chest discomfort, and also tachycardia with exertion. Um, and his heart rate would jump up quite readily up into the 130s with really very, very minimal activity, you know, short walk. Uh, that was observed on EKGs, it was a sinus rhythm. Uh, so he was back at work and trying to uh, do the job of was struggling. He ultimately was switched to light duty, but was unable to perform his usual work by about six or seven months later in mid-2022 uh, when we first met in our clinic. Uh, and this is someone, by the way, who had previously been very active, a CrossFit lifting, a uh, frequent half marathon runner, but now could barely get around the block. It was a, a dramatic transformation. Uh, and now his symptoms meeting him in the clinic were shortness of breath, like air hunger with activity that was described as his number one concern, but also fatigue, this fast heart rate with minimal exertion, uh, brain fog and cognitive dysfunction, uh, intermittent lightheadedness, and also tinnitus. So it's a challenge dealing with all of these symptoms and with how many people have this. As Dr. Seamus mentioned earlier, you know, the number of people affected by this because so many people have had COVID is tremendous. You know, at, at about 200 million estimated, we essentially have a new chronic disease, you know, with these other ones. And the common symptoms are much like this patient had, fatigue, memory problems, shortness of breath, you know, sleep, joint pain, and, and others. But the question is, where is this coming from? Uh, you know, fatigue is the most common. And the question is, what might be causing it? There are many conjectures as to, you know, fun pathophysiologic mechanisms that might explain this. And I just wanted to explore a, a few in, uh, in, in this discussion. 
One of them was the question of mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, you know, the mitochondria are where much of the, the ATP, the energy for the cell, is made. Uh, and so uh, might they not be functioning correctly as a source of this? Um, and there are other potential links. So mitochondria actually also play a role in the cellular innate immune response. And uh, the SARS-CoV-2 enters cells through the ACE2 receptor, which also regulates mitochondria. Uh, and there may actually be localization of viral proteins and uh, the RNA to the mitochondria, which could affect functions. There, there are a number of potential ways it could be affecting it. Uh, so there are some studies that have tried to quantify this and, and measure it. Uh, one was by Deborah et al., and this looked at metabolism changes in post-COVID. Um, now, the normal process is that you would have increased glycolysis with exercise intensity and then lactate's oxidized for energy by the mitochondria. So lactate clearance capacity can be an indicator of mitochondrial function. And what this study showed, and you can see the figures here, uh, they're, they're a little busy, but uh, what you're essentially seeing is that both the uh, fatty oxidation rate and the blood lactate were uh, markedly different in uh, those with post-COVID here illustrated in the uh, uh, blue and uh, uh, lavender colors for those with and without prior comorbidities compared to normal controls, which is the, the black. Um, and what you're seeing is that it's decreased even in the post-COVID with no prior comorbidities and normal pre-COVID fitness. Um, one possibility is that there's just essentially an early switch from fatty oxidation to carbohydrate oxidation. Um, and there was no different car in difference in carbohydrate oxidation when we passed in a historic cohort. But marked changes, as you can see, for example, the rate of fatty oxidation in post-COVID at you know, near zero power output in terms of watts was roughly comparable to a very high you know, 200 watt output in normal controls. And similarly, the blood lactate level in post-COVID folks at mild exertion you know, of, of, of 50 to 100 watts was you know, roughly uh, correlating to normal controls at double that at power output. Um, another possibility is that perhaps there's impaired oxygen uptake in chronotropic responses in severe COVID, and this was Longobardi et al. that had looked at this. Um, and the, the concern was that there may be problems with uh, uh, the chronotropic response, that there's a decreased chronotropic index, and while they may have a fast heart rate at times, that their, their maximum heart rate may be limited and they have impaired recovery, and they in fact may have a higher metabolic demand even at walking pace. So there may be, and this is patients with uh, severe COVID, by the way. But not just in severe COVID, but even in those in non-severe COVID, which is covered in the study by uh, Singh et al., they found persistent exercise intolerance. And at least in this study, the, what they found was this peak aerobic capacity was reduced. And the question is, where is that coming from? Uh, you know, based on the Thick principle, by the way, named for uh, Thick pictured here, this is uh, an 1870 citation of uh, a meeting where this was first, uh, first mentioned. It's in German, so I can't read it, but it's, uh, I can get the idea. But uh, uh, based on the Fick principle, as long as there isn't some mechanical problem, if the peak VO2 is reduced, it either has to be because of one or, or both of decreased cardiac output cardiac index or response or impaired systemic extraction. Essentially, you're either not having a sufficient supply from heart and lungs or you're not having sufficient use of that oxygen supply in the periphery. And what they found in this study was that in these you know, non-severe you know, folks with a history of COVID, uh, the cardiac output was fine. In fact, the average was about 115% of predicted. It was high. Um, and oxygen delivery was preserved, but the extraction was reduced. Um, and they had abnormal slope of ventilatory efficiency as well. And also these patients had an increased hyperventilatory response to exercise. So for our patients who are describing the significant shortness of breath, perhaps this is a part of it, that they're trying to compensate, but their body just can't use the oxygen very well. And what they found with these patients is that while there was some improvement in both uh, peripheral extraction and the cardiac index at sort of lower levels, 
once you got to higher exertion levels above 75% of peak, there was no increase in extraction. The only changes were from the uh, changes in cardiac index. The extraction was the limiting factor. So uh, one question is, you know, with, with these studies, what can I do to test my patient for post-COVID? Is there something I can do to, to see it? And this is an area of active study looking at a variety of things from, you know, functional studies and imaging to, uh, you know, serum and, and other, you know, physiologic labs. Uh, you know, imaging is probably one of the more accessible ones. And unfortunately, it's probably not that useful. Uh, in the Mediterranean cohort study by uh, Moreno Perez et al., um, what they found was that there was just not a great correlation between imaging severity and symptoms. For example, in this group of people who had been hospitalized with COVID, only about 9.3% had abnormal pulmonary function tests, mainly with obstructive and, and mild findings. Um, just under 20% had imaging changes, but of those who had imaging changes, more than half, 52.9, were free of respiratory symptoms. For those who did have symptoms, like cough or shortness of breath, only about 20% had abnormal imaging, and only about 14 or 15% had abnormal pulmonary function testing. Uh, in fact, with imaging in general, the only thing that was associated with persistence of abnormal imaging was a higher imaging score, having a more abnormal image in the first place, basically if you had really severe COVID. So there's not a great correlation between uh, imaging and illness severity in, in post-COVID. Um, ultimately, because there are you know, so many different potential pathophysiologic mechanisms and different organs that could be affected, while you do want to, of course, explore the differential when you're working up these patients, it's useful to involve other specialties. And rehabilitation in particular is so important for dyspnea and exertional intolerance. Um, in one study by Zampagna et al., uh, they looked at some functional indices, so things like the SPPB, or short physical performance battery, the Bartle index, which basically measures activities of daily living, and things like a walk test and uh, sitting testing. And what they found was in both the short physical performance battery uh, and the uh, Barthol index, there were meaningful improvements from 0.5 to 7 in the SPBB, which is a, a decent improvement, and a near doubling of scores in the Barthol index, a measure of activities of daily living. Also importantly, the proportion that were unable to stand or rise from a chair or walk uh, was significantly reduced in the people who had undergone this, this inpatient rehab, so there was improvement. For our uh, practice for, for patients here, we collaborate closely with physical therapists who have significant experience managing patients with PASC. Typically, the program will be an initial assessment. Um, we'll use a subjective assessment, this uh, questionnaire called the PROMISE 29 uh, in our clinic, but also strength, mobility, and stamina testing. What we do is engage in, a, as discussed previously, symptom titrated physical therapy. You know, different than normal physical therapy, we're not trying to push, push, push with patients, but let their symptoms be the guide for what they're able to do so that they can keep doing it the next day. It's useful to focus on energy conservation. We talk about the three Ps of pacing, planning, and prioritizing. And you want to watch carefully for post-exertional symptom exacerbation. Um, you know, the post-exertional malaise is real and can be very debilitating, not only in a physical sense, but uh, very demoralizing for patients to have tried and failed and feel that there's no way to improve. Uh, going about it in a, in a better way, uh, in this way that focuses on symptom titrated therapy and uh, careful rest can be much more productive and, and uh, hopeful. Um, and in terms of order, it's probably best to do frequency first in terms of increasing then duration, and then last, intensity. We've also had some success with diaphragmatic breathing programs, uh, uh, like stasis breathing. Uh, these are uh, things people, uh, things patients do daily or twice daily, and they may work by similar autonomic me mechanisms as the cellular ganglion block in terms of affecting that system, and they can help not just with breathing but with other symptoms. So back to our case, uh, our patient did engage in physical therapy with extensive uh, post-COVID experience for them. They just had a wonderful response over several months, and essentially all their symptoms improved. They benefited in particular from breathing exercises for both shortness of breath and pain. 
And so our patient actually did get a tilt table test to speak to Dr. McConnell's investigation and was diagnosed with POTS and has good results with intermittent beta blocker use. Ultimately, they had much improvement with rehab and their chest pain was much reduced. And while there was some relapse remitting of their symptoms, they actually were able to return to part-time duty in mid-2023 in a radical change from their previous status. So ultimately, the right kind of rehab is most likely the best current treatment strategy for this issue. And it's important to find that for your patients. So uh, in conclusion, post-COVID or PASC is a common condition in our patients. It can affect many different body systems um, and behavioral interventions and medical therapies can be of help. Ultimately, being familiar with past symptoms and management strategies can make a tremendous difference in the quality of our patients' lives. Wow, thank you guys so much. That was um, really, really helpful to have kind of really concrete um, strategies for managing these patients. And also just to know that um, it's very important to identify them so that we can validate their symptoms and help give a name to what they're struggling with. Um, so thank you guys so much. Now, Dr. Seamus, um, are there certain patient factors that put them at risk for COVID or for long haul? Yes, definitely. Um, first of all, there is some evidence alluded to earlier that um, they are somewhat protected by vaccination. They're somewhat less likely to develop long-haul sy syndrome. Mm -hmm. There is also some evidence that patients who are treated with Paxlovid are less likely to develop long COVID. Mm, interesting. And many of the same risk factors that put people at risk for COVID-19 are also risk factors for long COVID. Uh -huh. Diabetes and metabolic diseases, overweight or obesity, autoimmune conditions, um, and um, also other syndromic conditions pre-existing, such as fibromyalgia, POTS, mm -hmm. and ME-CSF, mm -hmm. and migraines will often get much worse after COVID-19 infection. Okay. And Dr. McConnell, in terms of accommodations or um, disability, uh, you know, I know that Dr. Friedberg had mentioned a couple of different questionnaires that could be used. Are these helpful to uh, like helpful questionnaires to use to quantify things like brain fog or fatigue to make those accommodations? Or what's your strategy for um, helping patients with those accommodations? Um, I think they can provide some more, um, uh, as much as possible, objective data on how mm -hmm. patients are feeling with these um, syndromes. As far as like actual objective testing data, um, unfortunately, many patients will test um, normally on neurocognitive testing, um, not because they're not experiencing symptoms of brain fog, or um, I think a new and more preferred term is going to be acquired brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, it's similar to traumatic brain injury. Um, the issue is not that they're not having issues or problems with thinking. It's just that the neurocognitive testing oftentimes will not um, demonstrate the areas of um, difficulty. I think um, something to focus on when we're trying to help patients apply for accommodations with disability and work accommodations is just going to be, um, you know, emphasizing the um, reasonable accommodations that they have access to, you know, breaks with work, um, quiet places in which to work. They may need to have access to um, working in an isolated environment so they don't contract COVID again. Um, and just um, making sure to request these from employers, acknowledging that long COVID is an um, ADA identifiable um, condition and that okay. that should be supported as such. 
Okay, wonderful. And last question, Dr. Friedberg, it seems like our knowledge of long COVID is quickly evolving and advancing. So um, we really appreciate having resources to help, you know, um, as these new information appear. Now, um, you mentioned that it's very important to choose a therapist who has experience in managing long COVID. Uh, is there a way for people to identify local experts in long COVID? Yeah, it, it is hard because right now there's no central uh, governing authority or, or regulatory body for this yet. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the best thing to do is to look to resources in your community. Uh, you know, particularly academics, medical centers may have post-COVID you know, centers that you can look to and they may have folks they work with that you can reach out to. Mm -hmm. um, there are some nice national databases. Uh, Survivor Corps has uh, a website that's a little out of date, but it has a nice list, at least in the United States, of uh, in a variety of states, different locations to go to. Mm -hmm. And things like local patient support groups and forums can actually be a wonderful resource. Um, you know, as Dr. McConnell discussed, you know, this was an illness that was originally described to us by patients, brought to us by patients. And so they're very effective at organizing and advocating for themselves. And so marshalling those, those resources is wonderful to be able mm -hmm. to uh, find resources where you are. Okay, that's a really helpful tip. Thank you so much. Now we're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Dr. Seamus? So here's the number one takeaway from, from my standpoint is you can do this, right? Long COVID is a new condition. It may seem a little intimidating, but you can recognize these patients, you can give them vital information that just by giving them that information alone will improve their quality of life and help them. You can help them get the disability accommodations that they may need, and you can treat them often without even having to resort to repurposed medications just with behavioral measures. Dr. McConnell? Um, I would suggest that um, having an open um, and collaborative relationship with your patients is probably one of the more important things to emphasize, um, acknowledging that this is, a, um, as I tell my patients, kind of the wild west of medicine right now where we are all learning together. And so encouraging them to send um, articles they find, um, you know, kind of sharing that information with patients, um, making sure that the um, um, therapies that they're interested in trying are coming from validated places as opposed to certain um, social media sites and um, just kind of discussing those together, um, making sure that patients are making the right decisions for them, but also safe decisions. And Dr. Friedberg. I think the best thing I can recommend is to listen to your patients and to make sure that they feel heard. Um, because this is an invisible illness and a new one, often patients will not feel heard by their friends, family members, spouses, their physicians. And so it's so important to find out what you can about this illness and to be there with your patient and be an advocate for them. Thank you so much for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging onto the website ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Next week on MedNet, we are on hiatus for the winter holidays. So join us again in two weeks with my guests, Dr. Carolina Zariba and Thura Harfi to learn about cardiac imaging indications. We wish you all a happy holiday. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.